The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner and I have the pleasure of being joined by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, um, pastor of Singer to the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, thanks for spending some of your morning with us. You're very welcome. A pleasure to be here. Um, as is your custom, as is our custom, um, we'll start with a prayer. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mary. Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us. Pray for us, have recourse to to thee. Almighty and eternal God, who savest all and wilt have none to perish, have regard to those souls who are led astray by the deceits of the devil, that rejecting all errors, the hearts of those who err may be converted and may return to the unity of thy truth through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you listen to uh, the last show with uh, with His Excellency and myself, we, we looked at the, the, the Renaissance, the period from 1517 through 1648, and we talked about the fact that the word Renaissance isn't really a good term to apply to that that period, or if so, it was a it was a renaissance uh, of of bad things. So today we we want to look a little deeper. His Excellency had made the point in between programs, in between last episode and today's episode, that we needed to go a little deeper with the errors of Martin Luther because as we looked at a united Christendom at the beginning of this series, uh, as His Excellency described what Christendom looked like you know, at the time of, uh, let's say, the crowning of Charlemagne, everything was united. When church and state uh, are together and working for the glory of God, then then the, the beautiful effects spread out everywhere. You see it in art, you see it in music, you see it in architecture. I, I dare say you even see it in food. Yeah. And um, And when you decide to break those things apart, when you rip apart church from state, basically everything's up for grabs. And what a lot of us don't know, and and I myself even need to revisit, even though I've had a chance to look at this material before with His Excellency, we really forget what a deep and lasting effect Martin Luther had and how he, we can't isolate him and say he was a theological problem. Oh, he had some issues with justification. He is responsible for the, for uh, in a large part, for the life we live today. That's a, a strong statement to make, but I think His Excellency will make will make a good case today. And um, with that introduction, Your Excellency, uh, why, why why don't you get us started with the, the specific errors of Luther? 
Well, well yes, indeed. Um, what's always struck me about about Martin Luther is obviously that he's not the, the, the would-be reformer who's hailed by the Vatican II popes. And all we need to do is to reform ourselves and get together and have roundtable discussions, and somehow everything would work out okay. He's the man, as you say, he's the man of separation. He separates everything which God has joined together, obviously matrimony itself, but um, uh, the whole the whole idea of, of, of the church, the church is representing Christ. No, he separates that. He separates everything, as, as we'll see today, Luther. You really have to say, if you want to get, who's at the root of the rot? Why are we facing the, uh, a, a new religion, which, of course, presents a Lutheranized version of a, of, a, of a mass, which is no longer a mass? It's all because of Luther. And, and what we'll see today is very interesting, is um, the seeming paradox how Luther is the demonic father of every evil in modern, not only in theological terms and religious terms, if you will, but in, in modern society itself. He's the, his, in his ideas, you see the root of um, a false, or godless, or secular democracy. You see the root, too, of, of absolutism, whether it be on the part of so-called Christian kings and emperors uh, during the, the eras that we're talking about in history, or whether it be a tyranny on the part of government. We're also going to see socialism. And uh, the root of its opposite, what was today very popular for some, libertarianism, as well as all the proper theological no-nos, all of the the really wicked and stupid ideas, naturalism, manichaeism, um, a term that's a, that's a great favorite of of the current pretender Bergoglio, uh, Pelagianism. All of this we're going to see in the uh, doctrines of Martin Luther. So. As we're looking at the root of the rot, uh, Stephen, I think we do very well to spend some time examining in detail, <laughs> excuse me, some of his, um, most of his, all of his, if possible, all of his false ideas, how he formed the modern world. First of all, we, 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 we need to look at his doctrine of justification by faith alone, faith not the submission of the will to God who reveals, but faith rather as a, a sort of a, an individual personalized trust or confidence, what they call fiduciary faith. Um, th- that is to say that we will save our souls, not by keeping God's commandments, not by believing the truth that he reveals to us by his church, but we'll save our souls by a simple individual personal act of trust or faith in God. The practical consequence of this is that our daily lives, our moral activity or our immoral activities, none of this has anything to do with the attainment of eternal life. It just doesn't make any difference. The, the church, the Catholic, the Catholic faith, inspires us with the hope of eternal salvation. As our Lord says so very often, if you love me, keep my commandments by keeping our Lord's commandments, eternal life. Protestantism turns that all around and reverses it because a Protestant needs only to keep a certain fiduciary faith that he's saved and then everything else will be fine. What does this end up with? It's going to lead us to the secularization of of human life because you don't have to be concerned about saving your soul anymore. Now, we have to be concerned about something. What will you be concerned about? about making money, about um, making a good name for yourself, or maybe simply it's just survival and, um, and, and getting through the life, uh, squeezing out of it as, as, as many pleasures as you, as you possibly can. That's the first um, 
of his errors, which which affect us so much today in the creation of of uh, of modern society. Now, this secularization that, that we're talking about also leads to uh, depraved morals, because remember that Martin Luther claimed that that God's grace covers man, a sinner, just as snow would cover a, a dunghill in a in a barnyard. There's no there's no actual sanctification of us. We're not changed. We're not made holy. We're just covered over. Indeed, remember, too, I think we had this quote last time, uh, thanks to you, Stephen, how our good works, even our good works, are, are mortal sins, because we're just plain old sinners, and, and there's nothing that we can do to be good one way or another. Remember, too, that Luther claims it's impossible for man to keep the commandments of God. So, this leads to an explanation of something which is sometimes interested or intrigued me. I don't know about you or our listeners, but do you ever notice in all these different Protestant religions, standard like Lutheranism or um, the Baptists, and certainly the, the stranger cults like um, uh, what those aren't even Christians, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, there isn't anything or there isn't very much, and it's certainly never talked about or developed in the way of a spiritual life. Here you have all these books, you have all these saints, you have all of these doctrines um, of man becoming holy, all the different schools of spirituality that the Catholic Church uh, gives to her children as a way to save our souls by becoming holy, by becoming more like to our Lord, Our Lady, and to the saints. You don't see that in Protestantism. It's just not there because of this idea, well, you're depraved anyway. All you could, you, the best you can hope for is to cover yourself, as Luther would teach, with, 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 the, with the merits of Christ. And so you end up with Luther having created, in effect, an anti-Christendom, exactly the opposite of the Christendom, the, the culture uh, of, of the faith, say, at the time of Charlemagne, during the whole of the so-called Dark Ages, and certain during the whole of the, uh, of the glorious Middle Ages. Well, then the question comes up, Stephen, what about morality? Because as a matter of fact, to keep a, a balanced viewpoint here, many of the Protestants whom we know, and many of the Protestants whom we know about, say, historically, actually have a reputation for being very conservative in the way of, of their morals, of, and, and indeed, in some senses, stricter than the Catholics. You know, our Baptist neighbors, when I was growing up, they they would never go to a dance. They wouldn't allow their children to go to dances. The Catholic parish sponsored dances. There was no drinking, at least not in public, although they say sometimes Baptists, you know, you'd find the, the beer cans hidden behind the uh, the minister's house. But 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 there was a very, no no makeup. Women yeah, you wouldn't say hi to each other in the, you wouldn't say hi to each other in the liquor store. Indeed, not you would. Right. That that would be part of the Baptist morality too. I think um, it, it it goes back to this I, I, idea of what sin is there. Sin is there. What do you do about sin? And there, I, that's a profound comment, actually, a little crack of yours, Stephen, because that's the idea. It's there, but they ignore it. They ignore its reality. You've got to police people somehow. 
you have to the state or society or the or a church or religion has a has a has invested a great vested interest in making people vaguely behave themselves so that society can go on. Not everybody can have the free for all that Bergoglio wants to create right now in the conciliar church. Another sort of a Mao Zedong uh, cultural revolution. That's what he's after. Um, but how is how is that going to happen? I think. That due to Martin Luther and his and his false ideas, morality becomes a, sort of a shifting standard, secularized, which is policed by secular society. And churches take their cue. Protestant churches, false churches, take religions, take their cues from this from false society. Some sometimes they're they're very very strict, very very conservative, but never will you find lasting principles. And the proof of that is that all of these false religions have constantly changed over the years. At one point, they were against divorce, and at one point, they were against birth control and abortion. At one point, uh, they believed that, that the only ones who could get married are according to the natural law, a man and a woman. But now, they have slowly, one by one, given up all of these moral points, which they used to um, they used to police, they used to insist on. And the reason for that is that the Protestant religions, say like the conservative movement in America, has, or in France too, they have no principles. There are no principles. Luther destroyed the principles. That's the point. And all you're going to get is sort of a temporary policing of principles which are going to change. And what does that take you to? That takes you to modernism. That takes you to naturalism. That takes you to this utter subjectivism, which in a philosophical way is called nominalism. There's, there, there are no ultimate truths by which we have to govern our lives. So there, there are no rules for the spiritual life, for personal development, personal sanctity, personal discipline, the idea of confession. They have those things, but in a very sort of a watered-down, naturalized way. And so the Protestant ministers will, you know, they'll construct some theories of, um, let's say, some big evangelical church some super church. They'll construct some series of sermons based on their ideas of, of scriptures and, and so-called scriptural principles, but you're always going to end up, what happens when two Baptists run, run into each other in a liquor store? <laughs> you, 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 don't, you don't meet that person's eye. You ignore the reality of what's going on in that store or that room. And that's why Protestants base everything on, say, adultery on second marriages and third marriages and fourth marriages the same thing bergoglio wants to do because there are there are no principles these it's just a shifting sand and all of that is brought to you by our friend martin luther <clears throat> you know and it's interesting your excellency because we've i think we've lived with secularism for so long that mm -hmm. we we don't really think about where did this come from and, and to say, you know, we say, well, it came from Luther, we might think in a vague manner, well, yes, of course, you know, Protestantism in general, but we have to look at it, it as, as we always talk about the root of the rot, there's a very specific cause here. If I'm yes. saved, why do I need to worry about, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, if I'm saved, Your Excellency, we can skip Lent, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> We can we we can skip the rogation. We got some rogation days coming. We can skip that too. And these processions where I've got to walk for like two miles, definitely going to skip yeah, that as well. And I walk don't need to too. do any of that. 
And I suppose part of that too is, is not just the idea of immorality, but it's this minimalism. You know, what can I get away with? Uh, so it's not just a, a, a decline in morals, but it's even even what what morals you may have. It may simply be a manner of uh, of good taste. This is what mm-hmm. polite society does. Exactly, it's a social it's construct. Secular. Yeah, and so that's how you end up with, say, Lutherans having a reputation for being really buttoned down, and much more strict and conservative and self-effacing than your your, your average. Uh, Joe Catholic with his six pack um, and his sort of relaxed view on 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 life, even in even in the old days. But it, it all it all does go back to this idea of uh, of the lack of principles of Luther's proposal. In effect, uh, Luther as a devil proposing to you either the sin of presumption, where you're going to heaven, so what difference does it make, or the sin of despair, if you really get thinking about it. This, then they say, and indeed, that, that Luther and uh, Catherine von Bora, his so-called wife and nun, whom he took from the convent, uh, gave in to the sin of despair before their death, which would not not be not at all surprising. But when you met, we talked about the the um, the processions. Of course, naturally, you know, for for a Protestant, all of those things are are totally are totally um, bogus, and, and, and they destroyed all of those things. But then they replaced them with something else, didn't they? Look at the, look at the Puritans, or look at the, um, at the classic, say, Lutheran service during the same time, maybe, of Bach. How carefully it was constructed, how long it was practiced, the, the musical excellence of it, and uh, how long it lasted, and how strict those Protestants were, as I say again, stricter than Catholics or Catholic countries in the way of the observance of their version of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. You had to go to church. If you didn't go to church in Elizabethan England, you paid a fine. Uh, you didn't see that in, in, even in the papal states. You didn't see that in, in, in Catholicism, but you saw it in, the, it was a Protestant construct, and yet it had no roots, or its roots were simply all rotted so that at a certain point it would just die and fall away because it wasn't founded in in catholic truth i also see in all of this and again this idea of of why should i bother to make a procession that's really catholic this catholic idea my life my uh, my uh, actions affect my eternity this is my choice Either I'm going to go to heaven today or I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to commit mortal sins or I'm going to stay in the sanctifying grace. I'll please God or I will displease him. The idea that it, that we should do these things but for other reasons, don't press into the reasons too much. They're cultural. They're, um, it's a question of conformity. Maybe it's a question of family. It's a question of history. There are a lot of good reasons for doing it, the non-Catholics or the non-Christians would say, but nothing to do with your eternity. Scratch that, and I'll look at that one. Where does that come from, finally? That's the Jewish concept of life. The Jews don't necessarily even believe in God. Certainly have no firm idea of an afterlife with uh, punishment. And yet St. Paul says, how can you save your soul? Unless you believe that there is a God, and a God who punishes the wicked and saves, and saves the good. Jews don't believe that stuff. And so, if they go to synagogue, if they keep kosher... If they, if they perform uh, many of these mitzvahs or good deeds that they have and they, and they, they dedicate their lives to study, the study of the, of the teachings of the rabbis in this blasphemous text they call the Talmud, um, that's, that's not to do with saving their souls. It's a very interesting approach. That's, all, that's cut out. All of this, that which is of, of, of natural 
religion itself. They don't accept those things. So by means of Luther, who had sort of an up-and-down, sort of a different relationship with the Jews, by, by means of Luther, you have the introduction into Christianity for the first time of a Judaized approach. And this will not be the last time by any means. You see this Judaized approach, it's what? What does Luther do? He separates. He cuts. He separates now the connection between my actions and my eternity. Um, then that's 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 really the profound the profound wickedness of it. So we've talked about the fact that we're we're secularized because of Luther's notion of of justification, mm-hmm. um, and and also because of his doctrine of grace as well. Yes, um, the 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 idea being that grace is extrinsic to man; it is not intrinsic. And there isn't any possibility even of an intrinsic change in you to make you to be like our Lord. And so the idea would be laughable. So you've got to look to some other external source as a way of making people basically behave themselves and for society to march forward. Um, another, another of the great evils of, of Martin Luther is uh, subjectivism. The idea that each man is his own pope. In that sense, Martin Luther taps into one of these bad ideas of the Renaissance, which is going to be showing up all over the place, and sometimes in very, subject, in very surprising corners, uh, the idea of individualism and subjectivism. But he carries it to the point that, um, the, from a philosophical point of view, the, the idea of, remember we talked about William of Ockham, that, that wretched old uh, English Franciscan, and, and, his, and his philosophical school of uh, nominalism. You can't exaggerate the importance of nominalism, that the human mind is the only source of truth, and uh, that it fashions its own truth, and that necessarily that changes. And so therefore you have every right to say, for me, this is true. But I also understand and I respect that it's not true for you. I respect your opinion. What a, what a truly stupid thing to say, right? I respect your opinion. How can you respect somebody's opinion on, yeah, I mean, I can, I can respect your, your opinion about how spaghetti bolognese should be made. Sure. I don't even know anything about it. Uh, well, a little bit. But I can respect your opinion about French cuisine and its excellence. Fine. But am I going to respect your opinion about nominalism? I don't think so. Or about Bergoglio? Hardly. Because I'm a Christian. I, I, I spit on your opinion. Well, not you, Stephen, but you, you get the point. I, I despise <laughs> it. I laugh it to scorn and I, and I crush it under, under my feet. That's what I do with your opinion. This whole idea of subjectivism, it's, it's true for me, but it's not necessarily true for thee. Um, that all starts, and then later on in, in the series, we'll be talking about Descartes and, and, and some of the other rotten modern, the phenomenologists, the rotten modern philosophical schools. But it all starts with that one Englishman, that one Franciscan, William of Ockham. Um, and then what, what comes finally is what became known during the great revolutionary decade of the 60s as um, situation ethics. That it, it's, it's the particular situation that, that, as it were, creates the 
the ethical requirements. The 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 essence of morality is 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 determined because it's changeable. So killing a man in this circumstance uh, would be okay, but killing a man in another circumstance would not be okay. And this is without any reference to the teaching of God through the Catholic Church, the moral theologians, anything. No, no, it's I make my own situation ethics. Uh, I, I sort of move that way from circumstance to uh, to circumstance all very subjectively. There's no obedience to the commandments of God, just uh, in, my, my, my mor- in my morals or my immorals, just as there's no uh, conforming of my mind to the revelation of God and to God's own um, objective truth. Well, and apart from subjectivism, again, this is tied in with secularism, and as you're talking about, I'm sure our listeners will, will hear in, in themselves, Your Excellency, the echoes of, of the reality of our daily life. And we, we are pointing back to how this, this isn't how people always live. People didn't always think you could just make up your own universe, make up your own reality, make up your own. They, they in fact, as, as your excellency, as you as you stated, um, for me that that phrase for me, <laughs> well, yes, that yeah. didn't probably didn't exist. But, you know, for for me that's pretty good, et cetera. Um, yes, and or that's what is... that's what I believe. <laughs> sure, and, and see, these are things that we accept. These are the coins of. Uh, of intellectual commerce, the coins of our conversation. We ex- this is our, you know, what's that, Bitcoin or something? This is our new currency. And, and we, we have it in our pocket all the time. And as our Lord would say, you know, wa- watch out. Whose inscription is this? Whose coin is this? If it, if it belongs to Caesar, render to, you're, you're already rendering to Caesar. So if you speak in those terms, you're, you're going to end up thinking in those terms. So one of, Indeed, one of the purposes of the true Catholic restoration under this radio enterprise and, and this series in particular is to make us realize that, that language matters. These little, these little phrases that we use, they matter very much. Let's stop and maybe look at some of them. Now, another word, another phrase, or two, would be that of Pelagianism. We heard a lot about that in connection with Bergoglio the last, uh, the last couple of years. Remember that Luther's concept is truly Pelagian to say that one can obtain eternal salvation by one's own efforts without the help of God's grace. Well, that's Luther and that's Calvin and that's their idea of this certitude of salvation. Um, but, but the truth of the matter is that without divine revelation, it is impossible to know if you are going to heaven or not, but Protestants, of course, would deny that. Uh, It's not by our own mere natural powers that we can please Almighty God, but that's the whole construct then of Protestant society as opposed to Christendom. And all of this then leads you to naturalism, which is the great, great enemy of, of the faith, in, in, in modern times, uh, as promoted by the organized forces of naturalism. The idea is this. It's the exaltation, almost the deification of man, of the natural powers of man. You can do it without Almighty God's help. Um, ever since the 16th, ever since Martin Luther, there's been this, this, this steady increase of, of naturalism. So what's What's worship? Worship is just a way of getting together to sort of encourage each other 
and um, to stir up one's own faith and to sustain this very shaky structure, which is that of a secularized society uh, based on, on Protestant error. Martin Luther hated the sacrifice of the Mass. This idea of our of man's corp as Father Fahey would say, man's corporate subjection in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, to the Father, that corporate adoration by the offering up of the sacrifice of His body and blood. No, it's what Bishop Sanborn calls Protestant worship, a weekly exercise in Pelagianism. And this is how naturalism then gets its hold on people, that you can do it by yourself. So you will use any and all possible means to keep people entertained. And by the by, by Protestant worship, you pump yourself up for a while, but you'll need a repump again. And uh, that's that, that that that's the reason why they would go to church once a week, if the, if indeed they do. Then that leads us maybe to a consideration of the Lutheran error of um, the universal priesthood. Now, here's where we, we touch society again. You wouldn't think the idea of Luther re- rejecting the sacrificing priesthood and a proper hierarchical society, church society, I mean, and the apostolic succession, you wouldn't think that that would have any connection with, say, socialism or communism, but it does. It has this, the, the idea is that um, anybody in the congregation could perform any one of these roles. He could preach, he could conduct a, a service, he could uh, rule over others. So it's simply a matter of the community, the local church appointing somebody. There, the, the, the idea of, of the priesthood, um, a representative of Jesus Christ with his, vested with his powers, is denied in favor of the representative of the people. Uh, the denial of the teaching authority of the church. Um, all, all of this then is is uh, is replaced with um, a very uh, popular based version of religion. So you can a democratic mentality, church policy. You can see very easily then how that you're going to make the bridge here between uh, religious uh, practices and secular society. The secular society that these religious practices are in the are in the process of uh, of creating eventually that gets transferred to natural politics there's this push towards towards democracy the push towards socialism but it starts with martin luther in his tearing down of apostolic succession and of the catholic priesthood um for for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Root of the Rot uh, with His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan on the Restoration Radio Network. Stephen Heiner, and today we've been discussing the various errors of Martin Luther and how these specific errors have led to modern-day consequences, that these modern-day consequences did not uh, come out of nowhere but had their their roots at this this Protestant revolt. And you're actually, I want to circle back for a moment to what you talked about with uh, keeping people entertained, uh, Protestants showing up to saying a mighty, a mighty fortress is our God and, and other things like mm-hmm. that, that the, mo- the modern megachurch, I wonder, I wonder how Luther would have felt about it. You know, these places have uh, coffee bars, they've got mm-hmm. babysitting, they've got, mm-hmm. uh, they've got teen activities, I don't know if they've got like dance studios. 
I've never, I've never been inside one of these, but I've, I've talked to some Protestant friends who tell me about what goes on at these mega churches and, uh, and the you, Starbucks I, you know, in the lobby too, you know, right. You, hey, you, you know, you if you're, you you're going to sit there for three hours, after right, hour, if you're going to sit there for three hours and sing, yeah. I mean, you better, you better have access to coffee and, and some snacks and, yeah. uh, maybe they, they, they clean up, uh, they come and get your napkins afterwards while you're, while you're uh, sitting in the pews, you know, sipping some coffee and, and singing some hymns. I mean, I suppose that's, that's one way to pass a Sunday morning. I certainly wouldn't, yeah. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't get up for that. <laughs> I, I think you could fairly say that although although Luther was in, in a sense like the classic German religious genius and a religious genius of his age, uh, this heresiarch was. Nevertheless, he he would he would be uh, shocked, appalled, and revolted. But that's the point. He didn't have any understanding uh, of the religious revolution that he was unleashing, of how he was uprooting Christendom itself. Because remember, Luther was very conservative in his matters of religion, and he was. Remember, Luther is, Luther is the, um, he's the neocon. He is the indult movement almost. He's almost the indult movement of the modern or Novus Ordo Church. He 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 wanted Latin to be kept, or at least these these nice hymns and chorales would be sung. Uh, he wanted the religious services to be conducted with uh, with decorum. Uh, he kept the old collects, he kept the introit, he, uh, he kept as much as he felt he could keep while cutting out what he hated, which was the sacrifice of the Mass, the offertory, and the canon of the Mass in particular. He even had and kept, um, as did Mohammed, a certain devotion for the Blessed Virgin Mary. He, he kept all of these things. He would be, he would be a stranger to the megachurch. But uh, we see the link through these ideas, not only through the tracing of history, it's a logical progression, but we also see the link through uh, through Luther's ideas that lead you to this because of naturalism, because of the idea of everything being cut off and separated, and because of uh, of, um, of secularism. Now, let's look at look, the whole question that I've stressed it in the past. You can never talk about it too much. The, a key concept of understanding how did this happen is power. Somebody's going to have power. And eventually, if somebody seizes power from the one to whom Almighty God has given the power, someone else will come up with a theory to justify it. So, in the case of Martin Luther, his rejection of the Catholic Church, its hierarchy, its uh, its rule uh, as a monarchy, and uh, its, his rejection of the papacy in particular, he ends up like the Orthodox, like the Russian or the Greek Orthodox, he ends up willingly subjugating his church to the state. Well, the state never met a power opportunity that it didn't like, that it didn't love. So what's going to happen? You will have then the rise of absolutism, the divine right of kings, and in general of totalitarian government. Uh, the old Christian society, let's review for a moment, uh, say the time of Charlemagne, the Middle Ages, in Christian society, the power of the king was never absolute. It was it was always moderated, as it were, by by the nobles, by the by the laws and the customs concerning the waging of wars and the raising of taxes, and indeed by by the church. It was always this interplay, this tension of the two sources of power: uh, secular versus religious. And 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 even if the secular power didn't exactly 
realize that it's or accept that its duty was to be the sword on behalf of uh, of the church's spiritual power. Nevertheless, the, the church's spiritual power, generally speaking, kept in check the monarchs from this absolute power. Now, Luther tells tells the German princes, and he tells the emperor, and anyone that will listen, listen, you can have the whole thing. Henry VIII pays attention to this. He hated a lot of Lutheran ideas, but he liked this one. Sounds good to me. I can seize the money. I can seize the income. I can seize the properties. I can reward my cronies. I can build my power base with all of this new money and property that will be mine because I'm the absolute power now. And I don't have to answer to anybody anymore. They are going to answer to me. So what do you end up with? You end up with totalitarian government of all sorts of different of all sorts of different sizes and styles. One size doesn't fit all, but you end up with the same idea at the end. So whether you're talking about modern the modern secular Western totalitarian state and its different empires, or whether you are speaking about uh, the absolute or, or so-called divine right of kings, which followed the era of the Protestant revolt, like the 17th and 18th century in particular, all of that once again is going to find its um, it's going to find its root in uh, in Martin Luther. In that sense, too, he he created the modern world. Um, and then 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 there's another Stephen. There's a contradiction here. Um, on the one hand. Uh, Martin Luther never brooked any opposition, and he was a little bit sort of naively surprised even when Melanchthon, maybe some of the others, or Zwingli, maybe Calvin, had their own ideas about certain aspects of his Protestant religious system, because he just sort of presumed that, that he was the great light that had come and everyone would follow him. But of course, he unleashed what? what he unleashed the horrible forces of subjectivism. So um, while he was certainly not one to promote freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, that's exactly the logical follow-up for what he promoted, because Luther assigns to every Christian um, what by right only belongs to the Pope. He creates as many religions as there are people. You can interpret the Bible for yourself. That's the bedrock truth of all forms of Protestantism. Every man is his own priest. Every man is his own prophet. And then in in a sense, why couldn't every man be his own king? That was the idea of the peasants' revolt. He unleashed that in Germany, and he only rejected it as a good Protestant would when he saw that it was impractical. Not because of principle, but it simply didn't work out. And then he, then he uh, preached and wrote um, vigorously to try to, uh, to try to oppose it. So he promotes the idea of, of freedom of religion because he says, you can interpret the Bible for yourself. Every man's conscience is his own guide. The Holy Ghost is going to guide everybody. So then what's he doing? He's, he's destroying the very idea of truth. He's saying that truth is not knowable. He's carrying that out in a very sort of a populist fashion, these philosophical ideas of, of, of nominalism. And so what does that lead you into? That leads you into individualism. Um, while individualism... And you could think in terms of uh, like the American political movement of libertarianism. Uh, while that would seem to be very opposed to socialism, really you, you find you find the sources for both of them in Martin Luther. You see, you find a, 
a, a seeming, uh, two seeming opposites, a paradox truly, that are in some sense reconciled because of because of these because of these notions of his of um, the destruction of of Catholic order and the the knowability of the truth. So. Uh, from, aside from being a really disgusting character, it's fascinating to study Luther, isn't it, Stephen? And just to get some idea of what he's really responsible for. I mean, he's such a creep. I mean, and that's one of the things we talked about in the last episode. Last time, we yeah. talked yeah. about, yeah, I mean, the man, and we, and I thought we kind of did a PG-13 version, really, Your Excellency. We, we, didn't, so. we didn't get into the... We didn't really get into the stuff, uh, you know, that uh, is, is a little too much to hear, but we, we did read some pretty terrible stuff. Well, that's just the, you could say, the shock part of it. This is the, the right, considered yeah. intellectual uh, look back where we can mm-hmm. say, okay, um, you know, here's, here's the big issues. So, 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 and the big issues are really this idea of democracy leading to socialism. We can get together and order our society any way we want to. And then the opposite of it, individualism leading to libertarianism. Uh, I don't have to get together with you at all. I'm my own priest. I'm my own king. And so it's utter, uh, it's utter personal independence. It's a, it's a daily and a total declaration of independence. And Martin Luther, that's the point. This pervert is the father of all of these false ideas. Last of all, um, Manichaeism, uh, you know, that our, that our, our blessed lady gave the rosy to St. Dominic as a way effectively to oppose Manichaeism, which is the, the old, the old heresy of the Albigenses or the Cathars, holding that, uh, that matter is evil and that anything uh, of the material world is, is wretched and is wicked. You, you see a lot of the, inf- of the influence of this today in modern, yeah, modern films, modern entertainment too, uh, the, uh, the triumph of, of Gnosticism really in our, in our midst. You see a moderated form of this in classic Protestantism, which does what? Which separates, again, separation, separates body from soul, which separates the material from the spiritual, which looks down upon and despises the material and says that no God must be approached in an entirely spiritual fashion. Well, that's just Gnosticism, isn't it? It's Gnosticism written all over it. So then you end up with the whitewashed churches painting over the paintings. Then you end up with pulling the statues out. A lady here at the parish was telling me a story of what uh, experience that her mother had during the changes, this big Franciscan church downtown called St. Francis Seraph in a monastery attached. And one day this, this lady's mother, who was a, a dear parishioner here at St. Gertrude, saw the brother, probably under orders from the, from the superior of the Franciscans, line up outside in the parking lot all of the statues from the church. And then with a hammer, he smashed each one so that they were destroyed and unusable, and then just carted off to the dump. Now that is this Manichaeism, Manichaean idea of, of just despising matter, and saying that's not going to be a way to approach God. We'll see, uh, if we get into it a little bit now today, about the Catholic, the Catholic, the true Catholic Reformation is exactly the opposite. That's why we use statues, and we use music, and we use color, and we use art, 
and every good thing which Almighty God created as we read in Genesis, and God created and he saw that it was good uh, as a way of, because man is a creature composed of body and so on, as a way to elevate man. But this Manichaean, Gnostic, you could use the word new age, the term new age, new age idea is that you have to be suspicious of this stuff. And so that's why classically or historically, Protestant churches are very severe, plain and bare. And when when they do do something like a mega church with Starbucks in the lobby and this big screen and a, and a, and a, and a really great PA system and a band and all that stuff, what, what do they go to? They go to the secular, because Martin Luther created secular society and secularism, because the idea of the sacred he despised, because Manichaean idea of Luther, all matter is evil, and man is evil, and every even the best actions you commit, said Luther, are mortal sins. So why even bother? Why even try? So I'm afraid we have to pin this one on him, too, uh, the idea of a, of a Manichaean approach to life. And uh, last of all, uh, Luther's idea of a free Christianity, Christianity that's a dogma-free zone, such as you have with the modernists, will indeed lead to what we have today, modernism and indeed ecumenism. That dogma is not really important. What matters is that we get together and be nice to each other. And there aren't really any principles, not that we can know about, and certainly not that would affect our eternal salvation. So, see point one, let's get together and be nice to each other. Let's sort of smile and 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 have coffee together. And that's the idea of liberal Protestantism. You can't really know if these things happened. Well, maybe they didn't, and that's okay. They didn't really happen. That's the that's that's the work of the modernists and the Jesuits, uh, and so so many of the modernizing uh, forces of the new theology during the whole of the 20th century after the death of Pius X. Uh, trying to destroy Christianity, little bit at a time. Everything is subjective. It's your opinion or your meaning, or guess what I just discovered in such and such a dig in China, and this is going to therefore affect our our faith. Um, so uh, the idea of, of Luther is is that of a of a free Christianity, which is a, a direct bridge to the ecumenical movement, because if dogma doesn't really matter, if all there is is your own personal, very individual faith, then there's no reason why we can't can't all, as Rodney King would say, why can't we all just get along? So it's the Rodney Kingization of, of Christendom. And you see to what depths, to what perverse and really pitiful depths Christendom has sunk finally with all of this. But if you want to see the root of the rock, it's see Martin Luther. Well, I, I don't really know how to follow it up, Your Excellency. I think that's uh, it's a great uh, bridging of of all of the contradictions. It's really a it's really a rat's nest, isn't it? Oh, it truly is. It truly is. It truly is. Uh, but but then on the other hand, how satisfying that should be to us to to see the intellectual roots and be able to trace the history, and that, as we were discussing before the show, it most of all is what we want to do in this series. We want to let people realize he he's the bad guy. He is the root of the rot. Now, then the next thing that, that, that we should be talking about is, is, at least for a while today, is to talk about the true Reformation, which was not the Protestant revolt, 
which was the introduction of rot and cutting out the living root of the faith. The true Catholic Reformation was um, was was that which was which was led in the Catholic Church from Rome, which eventually uh, reformed itself from the Roman Catholic religious orders, from the great saints, and by means of uh, the arts, uh, all of the arts, which were then properly uh, uh, made subject to to the faith and used as a means to promote the faith, to keep the faith uh, and the eternal verities, as in the Middle Ages, always before the eyes of the people, always in their in their daily life, that you have to be holy. And so that, that would explain, say, what, what Prague looks like still today. That's the importance of the shrines and the, and the beautiful churches. That's, that's, that's the reason for the music and for the art and for the architecture, for the bells, and for, and for the whole pattern of, of, of Christendom. And daily culture and life, it all reflects, it all reflects Catholicism. Boy, Your Excellency, you, you mentioned Prague, and, and my mind immediately goes to the most Catholic bridge in Christendom that I know of. Yes, uh, and uh, and and how you you can't even cross the river every day without uh, being confronted with that. Now, why don't we stay with with that idea of the Charles Bridge and okay. and what what the the Reformation was supposed to do? So, we talked in our last episode about being very insistent about not referring to it as the counter-reformation because it would yeah. a uh, it would a concede that there was a reformation to, to be had and that what what did the church want to do the church wanted to counter that re- reform we don't want any reform we want to be against reform mm-hmm. so we really want to stick to the idea of calling this period uh, let's say from 1545 to 1648 those bookends are the start of the council of trent and the end of the 30 years war that we want to yeah. look at this period as the Catholic Reformation. And if, if we look at the Charles Bridge, there's this beautiful bridge in Prague. There are certain um, statues that are, are very well kept up, and there are some that are still a little dirty, and, and there are some that are uh, more loved. I think there's one where uh, there's a, a soldier looking at uh, the dog, and people have over the years petted the dog, and the dog's mm-hmm. uh, very shiny and the rest of it's very dark, I tend to look at the church up to this time period the way that we would look at a garden or looking at all these statues, that there are some things that are doing really well, there are some things that are being neglected, etc. And what, what the Reformation is doing is, is revivifying everything, putting some fertilizer where the garden is, uh, cleaning up the statues, um, you know, pulling out the weeds, just making everything look beautiful again. And when you put the sort of effort in that the church did in the Council of Trent, it can't help but spill over. It's the the opposite of what Luther, Luther poisoned everything and everything got nasty. What the Catholic Reformation tried to do was was go back, revivify everything. And and actually you're going to see beautiful art, music, architecture, uh, as we talked about different types of food, uh, all of these things coming out of this time period because of this, I wouldn't say shot in the arm and maybe about 17 shots in the arm, um, mm-hmm. all the, all the different things that were done. And, and in a way, your excellency, could, could we argue that our particular ethic of Christianity outside of the first Vatican council, that we are essentially children of Trent, that, that our, our mode of Catholicism dates quite definitively to, to, to this time period. 
Yes, I think I think that I think that you you, you could certainly say that you, one would be hard put to overemphasize uh, the the Council of Trent. There's, there's a great quote from uh, Father Parsons, Father Reuben Parsons. If anyone can get a hold of him, it, it I, this is a book long out of print, but it's one of the most important of the true Catholic Reformation works, Studies in Church History by Father Parsons. Um, it, it refutes many, many, many a canard and many an anti-Catholic error, and it's fascinating reading, too. But this is what he says about Trent and its importance. Um, just as Protestantism is a synthesis of all the heresies which ever tormented the Christian body, from the outburst of Simon Magus to that of Luther, so the Council of Trent was a synthesis of all the preceding general assemblies or councils of the teaching church. So Trent is everything. Trent is, is, is a total synthesis. So much so, and I found this interesting, too, that, 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 the, that the French, even though the French never accepted formally or published, that would be the term published, the decrees of the Council of Trent, because naturally they were viewed as uh, prejudicial to the to the rights of the Gallican Church and to the rights of the Sun King and his predecessors or his descendants. Nevertheless, uh, a great French Gallican like Bossuet is is conscious of the fact that wow, well, this is the Council of Trent. So he's so he claims more than once that well, we all profess the faith of Trent. We just don't, because of historical or, or, or political reasons, we just don't have it actually published. In our, even he, even a Bossuet, has to, has to bow his plumed hat before uh, the grandeur of this great reforming Council of Trent. So we can never, we can never truly um, overemphasize its importance. It took almost 20 years. It almost didn't happen. It was suspended time and again for long periods of time, even for years. Uh, more than once... Um, the emperor, uh, Charles V of Habsburg, almost perverted it because his, his, his desire was a reform of discipline, but leave doctrine alone. He wanted, he wanted to hang, hang up outside the, 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 the cathedral in Trent, doc, dogma-free zone. He, he wanted to get the Protestants in and serve them coffee and donuts and see if we couldn't all get along together because that would be good for him Politically, and, and more than once, he almost achieved his end. Except, of course, Trent. Uh, this, ecum- this true ecumenical council was a work of the Holy Ghost, so he didn't. And so then, then finally, there was this great reforming work that was take that that, that would take place. And this is the very heart. Well, this is, the, the, in a sense, it's one of maybe the three pillars. No, the four pillars that I would say constitute the true work of Catholic Reformation. The others are the founding of the great religious, the founding or the reform of the great religious orders, the um, the saints themselves, whom Almighty God during this era lavished upon the Catholic Church, everybody in Cajetan, the Fian, Ignatius of Loyola, the great early Jesuits, Francis Xavier, Peter Canisius, um, so many, so many, and then, and then the great Dominicans, the reforming movement of the Franciscans, the Capuchins, and all the great missionaries they gave the Church, the proto-martyr of the um, propaganda of the faith, St. Uh, Fidelis of Sigmaringen, um, and, and uh, then... At, at the uh, at, at the same time, as we've alluded a little bit here, uh, also you'd have to look at look at the arts and how because the arts touch people in their daily life. So, in a city like Prague, 
or Rome, as soon as you, you leave the house in the morning, you're going to see a saint. You'll see a Blessed Mother at the corner. And then you'll see a statue of St. John Nepomucene on the, on the next street. And you will, you will, you'll live, you'll breathe this Catholic atmosphere. And then, with any luck, your priest, or at least a, a traveling missionary, some great Jesuit is going to come and uh, scare the daylights out of you by his wonderful sermons about eternity. And he'll save your soul and he'll get you into the confessional. Uh, that, that was, that was the, that's the world of the Catholic Reformation. Now, Stephen, if you'll indulge me just by means of a sort of a, of a summary almost, I want to read to you a little bit from Monsignor Hughes, his uh, popular history of the Church. It's, it's as usual for um, Hughes, it's a very balanced sort of approach, and I think it's a very good summary. He said, he writes, what, what Luther, Calvin, and the rest did, not, uh, did was not to reform the Church, the Catholic system in which they in which they were bred, but to build up new systems, systems based on their revolutionary theological theories. The Catholic Church, however, did not disappear. The loss of so many millions of its faithful did not destroy it. And within the Catholic Church, the movement to root out abuses, to tighten up the administration, to overhaul the whole mechanism, and the beliefs to protect which the machinery existed, after all. The movement that had never wholly ceased, even under the worst popes, now began to carry all before it. Such a movement is undoubtedly a reformation in the fullest sense of the term, and the reformation of the Catholic Church in the 16th century was the greatest triumph of the spiritual over the material, of man's better parts, over his far too long triumphant lower parts that the world has ever seen. The initial problem of sinfulness is met not by destroying man's responsibility, as Luther did, but by acknowledging it, and that most fully. And then here's what I think is so true, and this is all the church needed, along with a great doctrinal tightening up, during uh, during the the era leading up to Vatican II, the sole cure it was declared lay in repentance, the amendment of life, and the means were prayer, penance, closer union with God, upon whose grace truly all does depend. The new religion solved the difficulty of religious practice by making concessions to human weakness. Boy, you could apply that to the Noah's Ardo, but the Catholic Church kept the ideal at its eternal height and with a policy of no surrender fought off the natural human tendency to lower the ideals. This great uh, reformation of Catholic spirituality is truly the Catholic Reformation. And these are the, 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 these are the different means which the Holy Ghost then used for this very purpose. Well, and it's interesting too, Your Excellency, because we talked about Trent being, you know, what a council is supposed to be. And not all Christians are born and die within the era of a council. You know, between mm -hmm. Trent and Vatican I, Catholics were born, you know, uh, were ordained, were married, and died. They never even knew that, you know, they never had a council because right. everything was, everything was as it was. It was a uh, comilfo. And now mm -hmm. you have, you have two councils that we had close. We had Vatican I, which was an excellent council that had its own historical 
and sociological reasons for occurring, in, in addition to its theological reasons, cut short by war. And then you have this anti-council of Vatican II, and, and so it taints the way that we look at things. But if we look back and say, what is a council supposed to be, and what is it supposed to do, um, everything, basically, it's the anti-Vatican II. And I thought it might be helpful to have you walk us through some of the ways in which it is an anti-Vatican II. What are, what are the things that it did that, that the Second Vatican Council didn't do? It, um, well, first of all, it was not afraid to condemn. <laughs> and it condemned, and it condemned, and it condemned. It issued anathema after anathema. All these anathemas were hurled uh, against against the foe. And, and this is all the more glorious and all the more the work of God, because at the same time, they were meeting in the emperor's dominion. They were just across the border, but nevertheless, they were in the Holy Roman Empire. There, uh, Charles V was there, and he was pushing with all of his might and all of his main for, yes, sure, reform, uh, you know, let the let, let everybody behave himself, and let everyone just have one benefit, and let bishops stay in their diocese. No problem with any of that. But then uh, he could never get it through his thick his thick uh, German skull, if I may say so. That um, the the idea that you could bridge Lutheranism and the Lutheran idea of justification by faith alone, and everything we were talking about in the first part of our of our show today, that you could somehow bridge that with Catholicism. Uh, some of the popes were even even willing to um, to compromise to a certain degree, say on some of the disputed questions of the days of the use of the vernacular, a communion under both forms. But what nobody would give up was Catholic truth. Unlike Vatican II, Vatican II, instead of hurling anathemas, took every doctrine, took every idea, and took every falsehood put it all together in, in the mixer and sort of left it out in the air so that it could develop that sort of fuzzy, moldy growth on it. So everything is fuzzy and vague in general. But that's the work of nominalism, isn't it? That's the work of William of Ockham. It's the work, this is my opinion, this is my idea. It's the setting up of, of um, the setting up of uh, the idea of, uh, subjectivism in, in the way of faith. However, when you look at the Council of Trent and you read the anathemas and you, and you plow through the si quis dixerit, if anyone should say, and if anyone should say about all of these different theological and indeed disciplinary questions, you're in, you're in an entirely different world. You're in the world of clear Catholic doctrine. It's that based on principles. That's Catholicism. That's revealed religion. That's the truth. And all of these other forms, whether it be the creeping modernism of the 19th and the 20th centuries, eventually led by the Jesuits, who, who led the Catholic Reformation to such heights of glory, saved entire countries for the Church, and then in the 20th century, disgracefully led Led the, led the path to destruction. It's always that idea, though. Everything is, that's Vatican II. Everything is vague in general. And in, in Catholicism, in the glories of the Council of Trent, everything is very, very specific. Everything is, see, quis, dixerit. Whether it be papal authority, whether it be the language of the, of the sacrifice of the Mass, whether it be the doctrine of grace and of justification. It's all very, very clear. 
The emperor didn't want it, and the devil certainly didn't want it, but God did. The Holy Ghost did. And under the protection of the Holy Ghost, the Catholic Church then reformed herself, beginning with Catholic principles. And then, then I think you have to say, too, but not ending with Catholic principles, because Catholic principles would have been just that, principles, you know, written someplace, spoke about by bishops. But what made the difference, just as, you know, well, let's continue the comparison, Vatican II versus the Council of Trent. What made the difference was that you had all the, you had the apostles of this council who would then go out and armed with its truth, they would live it and they would preach it to a heroic degree. We called them saints, whether they were canonized or never have been canonized, and in such numbers that the, the, the world was saved for Catholicism. Catholicism doesn't need to be saved because it's, it's, it's God. The faith will last till the end of time. Now, look at the anti-apostles, the um, priests and the religious who are perverted by these false ideas of, of, of modernism, of naturalism, of nominalism, all these errors that go back to Martin Luther. Look at... Uh, how the, the, the false apostles, like, I remember it. I lived through that era. I found it extremely confusing for a while and very, very distressing, of course. But you saw in just a few years, two, three years, wow, the total destruction. But these were, these, as, as it were, these were the anti-Xaviers, the anti-Peter Canisius, the anti-Ignatiuses of, of our modern era. They went out with, uh, very Lutheran-like, destroying, separating, ham- uh, metaphorically and, and literally smashing statues and altars and tabernacles and, and Catholic doctrine and Catholic life and Catholic culture and connect and art and, and everything and replacing it with this, this bill of goods that everybody was sold. All of these fuzzy ideas, personal subjectivism, that would lead as you want it to libertarianism or lead to, to socialism or lead to utter state-controlled uh, tyranny. Uh, that's the, 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 so it's Vatican II. It's Vatican II that put the Catholic Church uh, into, into the grinder. That's what they wanted to do, and they did it. It's, uh, uh, and, and which applied all, the, all the, the, the false doctrines of Martin Luther. And it's, and it's a triumph. Vatican II, even a very cons- a conservative interpretation of Vatican II, is an not only a triumph, but is a is sort of a of a true loyalty uh, to Luther. That's that's what Luther wanted. So, like a conservative Latin Novus Ordo, Luther could ask for nothing more. That's what he really wanted. Uh, but no ideas and no no Catholic doctrine behind it. That's for sure. Um, whereas the uh, Council of Trent took the ideas of of Luther and smashed them and let let left nothing at all to anybody's imagination. Uh, I read something this morning interesting, Stephen, about how, of course, now that the big thing is divorce and remarriage and how Bergoglio thinks that by promoting a revolution, a real, just a revolution in every sense of the term, that's somehow this philosophical idea, Hegelian dialectic, that somehow out of these opposing forces will come this this new synthesis. Ratzinger is a great believer in that too. That will be this this new age church that they're they're really after. Well, one of the great topics of debate at uh, the Council of Trent was the question of of divorce and remarriage, because the Greeks uh, had always held. 
They wanted to be united with everybody. But the Greeks had always held that in the case of adultery, there could be divorce. But that didn't bother the fathers of the Council of Trent any more than it bothered a great, a great prelate, a great pope, rather, of that era, say, Paul IV, the, the Carafa Pope, who uh, just, that, that, the idea is this, we're just going to, these are falsehoods. We'll identify the falsehoods, Pius X-like, and we'll smash them, and we'll make it very clear that sequistics, or if anybody says, then you, you, are under, you are under an anathema, a total condemnation of Almighty God and the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul. Uh, all of our faith, all of our, of our faith now, in, in face of the modern errors, which go back to Luther and beyond, is, is based then upon the, the, the true, clear Catholic teaching of the Council of Trent. So I, we really do well to, um, to, to examine the two councils, one a false one, one a true Catholic one, um, and, and to compare because everything is there. Everything is there. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to The Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and the voice you just heard was that of His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. For um, for the last hour, a little bit over an hour, we've been discussing various errors of Luther and how they've led to basically our modern life, uh, the, the, the current and climate that we swim and live in. Uh, in many ways can be traced directly to the Protestant revolt and to Luther himself and, and the errors that he propagated. But more recently, we've been discussing the Catholic Reformation, um, po- known popularly, erroneously, as the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and uh, the various ways in which the Council of Trent was everything that Vatican II wasn't in, in, in so many ways. Um, you know, Your Excellency, it's, I, there's a couple points here I'd like to discuss. One is is about Baroque art. And this is something that uh, it's, it's always interesting to discuss with people. Um, I, I was very blessed to spend a semester studying in Rome and you know, being very young, I was, I was bowled over by, by all of the, the churches there. And as I've studied more art and I've spent more time and I'm um, looking at various churches and different styles of churches, I've come to realize that you know, as any Catholic does, I have a great devotion to Rome and to, every, you know, the stational churches and everything that, that there, you know, you've got, you've got things like the, 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 the chains of St. Peter, you've got the Scala Santa, you've got, uh, you know, literal soil from Jerusalem right there that, that's in Santa Croce. But that those are not my favorite style of churches, but this is a time. Per- this is art, art, art that comes out of this time period. Especially, you know, Saint Saint Peter's as the the show the showpiece of of Baroque architecture. Yes, and um, there's almost a how can I say this a wild joy that that comes out of, of affirming Catholicism that the, the, the council yeah. the Trent that the, the council of Trent so strongly affirms as you as you pointed out here's an error we're going to smash it here's an error we're going to smash it here's an error we're going to smash it and we're going to proclaim Catholicism uh, and this comes out as a triumphalism that expresses mm-hmm. itself very very vividly we le- we see a degeneration of this you know with the the late Baroque and then the Rococo where I, I think it's that's that's definitely not my favorite type of architecture. I can, but even here we we can look back and say, well, is this 
is this what we're striving for or is this our response? We're trying to respond to Luther speaking down to man and bringing us down. We can't go all the way back. We can't go back and say, well, look, here's Gothic architecture and this is, this is what the height of Christendom is. We're, we're past that already. We passed that point of departure. So in a yeah. way, the art and architecture of the Catholic Reformation is the best that we can offer once humanity's already been drugged down this path. Hmm. That, that would be your theory, sort of like second best. I would say that it, it pales. I, you know, I don't, when I think about something like Saint-Chapelle or Chartres, I, I think about Christendom as it was synthesized. And when I look at a Baroque church, um, it's an, it, I don't want to say it's a different spirit of Christendom, but it's almost a different approach. Right. There's a sort of austerity behind the Gothic church and, and Gothic architecture. Uh, the Baroque can't do that. The Baroque almost has to proclaim, we're Catholic, and let me show you 40 different ways that we are. But a Gothic church is never going to do that in, in the same way. And, and again, I, I, maybe I've, I've articulated it, my point so poorly that the, no. the point's been lost. But it's, 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 certainly, it's certainly a fascinating topic once again, and certainly worth discussing. Uh, all, but look at all these Catholic, legitimate forms of Catholic art and architecture. What do they all have in common, Stephen? Uh, they all make you look up. You follow our Lord, as it were, at his, at his ascension into heaven. And with Our Lady and the Apostles, you look up to heaven, waiting for the coming of God the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, as you have with uh, Bernini's magnificent altar and the altar of the chair on that one big stained glass window. Uh, and if you've ever been in St. Peter's, when the light is right, and you see those rays of light coming from the huge stained glass window of the Holy Ghost over the altar of the of the St. Peter's chair and the apse of St. Peter's, wow, what a what a feeling, what an experience! And it's it's out of it's out of holy power, and at the same time, it's something which is disembodied and ethereal. It lifts you up, and it's glorious. It all celebrates the glories of the faith. The, the Gothic architecture is more spiritual and more sublime. The Baroque and the, uh, is, uh, represents the, you know, the enduring legacy of the, of the Renaissance, say what you will. The Baroque and even into the Rococo is, 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 a, is a bundle of activity and of feeling and of emotions. But that's the world, and that takes you, that, that's the era, that's the age. So that takes us back to that idea, which I think we could never overemphasize in any of these shows, in any of these discussions. What is the attitude of the church towards popular culture? On the one hand, it may be said that she creates the culture because she is in, indeed the mater, the magistra, the mother and the mistress. Uh, on the other hand, she takes popular culture where it is, and she sanctifies it, and she never disdains. She's a mother. Like mothers, you do the dishes, and they, 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 they change the diapers. She doesn't care. She's a mother. She's not embarrassed or ashamed of this stuff. She cleans it up, and she sets it to the glory of God and most of and the salvation of souls. That, that, that's the point, and that's, she never forgets that. So therefore, you have you have Gregory the Great giving instructions to St. Augustine when he goes to England, uh, saying that, okay, you take those pagan temples and you clean them out and uh, get rid of the idols and uh, sanctify them with holy water and with exorcisms, prayers, you consecrate them into churches. Here's the relics. You put the relics of the saints in. You build altars. And um, 
Then you take the pagan feast days and you sanctify them, and you make them into the feast days of martyrs and of saints and Catholic festivals. So she she takes the secular, that's what Catholic the Catholic Church does, and she sanctifies it. She makes it to serve. But every age is its own age for all sorts of different reasons. Medieval man no longer exists, nor for that matter does 18th century man, 17th, 16th century man, he no longer exists at the era of, of the Baroque and all of the rest. But in that Baroque architecture, you find at the same time all of the different trends or themes maybe that you're going to find in, say, Ignatian or Jesuit spirituality. That is to say, uh, an appeal no, I'm preaching to music. It's an appeal to passion. It's an appeal to man and his emotions, to his feelings, to his sentiments. That's in, in the very best, um, in the very best carrying out of Ignatian spirituality. That's what those meditations do, and even the the attempt at the revival of it by the by the uh, the Père de Chabay, uh, Father Burial from Macon was a good example of that, the, the parochial cooperators of Christ the King and their idea of the five-day retreat, Ignatian retreat in the Pius X Society, uh, promotes their version of that still today. The idea is that they take the emotions and they, in all sorts of different ways, they use them. And you, you are truly, you're almost sort of manipulated when you go into a Baroque church or when you do an Ignatian meditation. But that's the point. You're manipulated in a good way while still respecting, respecting the limits, the, um, the, the, the modernists or the brainwashers, the communists and the bad, the bad guys. They're not going to respect any limits. They're going to take the same ideas and go too far with them. But, but these, do you understand, these, um, these means are then used by the church the, the appeal to the emotions and feelings and sentiment, but for a good purpose, but for a good purpose. And so this is part of our Catholic history and our, our Catholic spirituality. And it has, um, has a lot, I think, it has a lot to teach our modern-day Catholics of the remnant, the Catholics who are left today in, in the world. The very, at the very least, we want to understand and want to respect it. But it's true, I mean, if you look at our traditional chapels today, or even our 1950s parish churches, uh, you know, very, very sort of buttoned-down, restrained affairs, and then our, our the chapels that we have left today, not much, obviously. The, the glories of Renaissance or Baroque Rome are far, far distant from our reality. But they shouldn't be. The same principles should obtain. That is to say, it should make us, it should, every chapel, every work of Catholic art in the home, on the street, in the church, it should be a continuous crying out of sursum corda, lift up your hearts. Oclosin ultum tolites, we will sing for the, uh, the ascension, Vesper hymn, lift up your eyes on high. They, they do, all of this does that, whether by, um, whether by calm and, uh, and sort of a sublime, very deeply spiritual approach of the Middle Ages, or uh, whether it be by this, the more, uh, the more frank approach, appeal to the, to the senses, to the sensual man, who's got to be met on his own level maybe, and then lifted up or elevated somehow, somehow towards God, which you get with the Baroque and the Renaissance, Ignatian spirituality, gorgeous church music, uh, and art and uh, and all the rest, but but the, the idea it serves that same purpose, and it's just a carrying out of this um, 
this this is the work of Mother Church, that she'll always be doing that. So it would be interesting to think about today, how, how should we look at these things? What could be, I think pro minimo, you can say that uh, there, there should be a lot more understanding on our part, appreciation, reverence, respect. And then the idea to imitate in some sense, uh, the idea is, is that, and this unites the ages of faith with the ages of the, of the you might say, the church the Catholic Church Reformation after the Protestant Revolt until the the, the true coming of the Revolution in the uh, in the 18th century. Uh, 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 that is to say, it's um, the idea is that everything is used by the Church for God's greater honor and glory, and nothing, the lesson of the Curie of ours, nothing is too good for God. Nothing is too good for Him. I would propose that we've lost that sense today. We've lost the sense of, of giving God glory by our churches, by our streets, by our cuisine, by our Catholic culture, by our daily life. Pretty much we've, we, we've lost the sense of it, and everything is individualistic in a bad sense, and as well in my opinion, I think, and everything is a minimalistic in a total, almost a totalitarian sense. Do the basic minimum and get by, and that's going to be enough. The idea of being sort of Magdalene-like, extravagantly generous with God, pouring out thousands of dollars worth of perfume on our Lord's feet, that's really Catholic. It takes all these different approaches, serenely spiritual or almost disturbingly sensualistic, if you will, some of those, uh, the scenes of the great art in Rome, uh, Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, or the great works of one of my favorite personal painters, the mannerist Caravaggio. But, it, but it's all for God. It's all for glory. And the idea is that it moves and inspires us. Um, so we're pretty far from Lutheranism, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, you know, my head's in the clouds, Your Excellency, as you're discussing all that. And I think your, your allusion to um, Magdalene, uh, you know, washing... Uh, although I, I'm never sure whether it's the, the the unnamed woman and the consensus of the church fathers is that it is St. Mary Magdalene, but that, that is breaking exactly. of that perfume, right? Yeah, we, we have yeah. this, you know, we today, you know, what does a bottle of perfume or cologne cost? Whatever it costs, it is. Mm-hmm. But the cost of that, what she broke was a year's salary. It was one year's yeah. salary that she spent. Yeah. And that's why the apostles were, or whoever it was, Judas was upset that, oh, Judas I can't believe upset. you spent... You, you you spent a year's salary on our Lord. How dare you? Uh, this exactly. could have been given to the poor. And it's like, <laughs> and nobody and ever. This, yeah, they never questioned. Ahead, it. No one ever questioned this stuff except until the Protestants came along, until the Manichaean heresies uh, in the Middle Ages, and then the Prot- and that got gelled with Protestantism, Puritanism, and this whole idea. But. I'll tell you what, there's still going to be a year's salary, and someone's still going to be spending a year's salary. And now you'll spend a year's salary buying a bottle of perfume for your mistress. And everyone is just going to look the other way because that's your, your French, and it's normal, c'est normal quand même, that you should have a mistress. Or, or you're an Italian politician. Well, of course, you know, what do you think? And then the same people in, in their public statements are going to do the Judas, and they're going to say, oh, we have to take care of the poor. And this is terrible, all this wealth of Catholicism. And we sure hope that Bergoglio gets around to close, making the Vatican into a, a Disney theme park and gives everything to the poor. Meanwhile, the mistress is still going to get her her, her expensive perfumes, because it's, and that's the point of our understanding of Lutheranism. It's in his secular society that he created. It's going to go somewhere, and this is either going to be poured out at our Lord's feet 
and at the same time enabling us to look up to heaven with utter generosity and deep faith and, uh, and devotion, love, devotion, devotion. Or it's going to be spent on the mistress. It's going to be spent, as the French spend their money today, on the pleasures of the table, the gourmandise. It's, it's, you're going to spend it somewhere. You're going to give it somewhere. Uh, but uh, where? That's the question. And for what purpose? That's the question. I want to I want to circle back here. There's so much to talk about, Your Excellency, but I just want to footnote what you just said uh, about where that energy goes. And, and we talked mm-hmm. about the fact that uh, this happened so quickly in the Netherlands that the, 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 the Dutch are fine craftsmen. And when religion was taken away, they spent all this time doing other things. So, so we have this really wonderful pottery. It wasn't religious, but they had to throw all of that art and love of the good life somewhere. And, and they, they focused here. They said, okay, well, we don't believe in religion anymore, so we're going to have a really good life. And to this day, the Dutch know how to live the good life. There's, there's no doubt sure. about that, but it's, it's solely focused on the here and now. Sure, you certainly, you certainly see that in the history of art. So we have a Rembrandt, and uh, you know he, he's, he's, going to be, uh, he's going to be doing some very interesting studies with light and with color and all the rest. But, but the topics are all secular. That's, that's the result of Luther and, and, and his revolt. It used to be that man's um, talents went to, were expressed Unacum, one with the glorification of God. That's the history of Christian art until the Protestant revolt. But from then on, with the entrance of secularism, uh, the arts no longer are to glorify God. And because they no longer glorify God, look at this. What do you end up with some fancy museum in Paris or in, in New York? You end up with these um, uh, these uh, artistic, so-called artistic procedures where all these people are going to line up to to an, uh, to view with oohs and ahs an installation, an artistic installation, it's called. Maybe and it's a dirty bed with filthy things on it. And everyone's going to co- consider that to be true art or even just standard blob of color, modern art. People are going to ooh and ah over that degeneration, just a degenerate approach to everything. Um, and and in, the, in the way of the, the rules of art or of culture or of balance or true beauty. And they're going to spend huge amounts of money because the money is going to be spent on that, on, on what, what's called modern art, but is truly de- degenerate art in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the most accurate uh, sense of that term. Uh, that's what you get when you turn your back on God. You end up being a beast. And that modern society makes man into beasts. It makes us, it makes us to kneel down into a door and to give our homage to the, to the filthiest, the most ridiculous, debased, and disgusting things you can imagine. That's modern anti-Christian culture. But that's all of that is that this vain attempt of man to fill in the vacuum that Luther created when he revolted against God and the divine plan for man's salvation. Well, Yorksley, I'll take us back to the clouds, and um, we've still got... Uh, some, some time to chat about these things. For those of you who are just joining us, um, you're listening to The Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. We're entering the last half hour of our show, and we've still got a lot to talk about. Hopefully, we can we can talk about all of it. But up to this point, we've been talking about the Catholic Reformation, what a real Catholic council looks like for those of us who have been, you know, born into an epic where we haven't seen one. 
So we don't know what it looks like. We only know what a council doesn't look like. Uh, I'm definitely, I would say, you're actually an expert in what a council doesn't look like. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Let's talk about some of the saints that were produced during this time period, because they, in their, in their variants, we can see that it wasn't one particular type of saint. It wasn't just a bunch of soldier saints or a bunch of contemplative saints, but really a full flowering all over. Um, the diversity between someone like a St. Philip Neri, a St. Francis de Sales, and then a St. Teresa of Avila, a Juan de la Cruz. Can you talk about those different, the focuses of those different saints and how they showed forth the light of this time period? It truly, truly interesting. One of my favorite saints is coming up on on the calendar next week. Uh, Saint uh, Saint Philip Neri um, on on on, on Monday, um, and he is saint, one of the popes during whose reign he he lived and uh, assisted the work of of a true Catholic um, Reformation was um, Paul the Fourth, and um, Paul the Fourth was a um, the Carafa the Pope was uh, was uh, was uh, was was a true and uh, and a ruthless, a relentless reformer, and he truly was of the of the burn slash and destroy policy when it came to anything that offended Catholic faith or Catholic morals, and he had absolutely no human respect. He would throw bishops and, and cardinals into jail just as happily as he would put ordinary people, ordinary clerics, to in prison or in, indeed into the into the galleys. For their sins, so he was um, he was a, a man of, of iron will. So you have him, and then you have somebody like like um, Philip Neri, who was um, who was in effect a sweetie, just this great great guy, this wonderful, attractive, humorous, sweet personality that just drew people. But they say it was it was it was truly um, Philip Neri. Who, who reformed Rome, and he created the Rome of the Rome that, 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 that we know uh, by, by recent history and even, and even today. Um, again, let me read something from, from, from Phil Pews, which is pretty good. Um, to, uh, to the work of, uh, of Philip Neri, the, the personal direction of, of innumerable souls, just as much as to the violence of this pope I was talking about, Paul IV, is due the final banishment of sinful life from those in high places in, in Rome, in the church hierarchy. The terrible pope cast out devils, and uh, in the clearance after he, he he made he made a clearance, and then Philip Neri would come in, and he would work very simply, unostentatiously, with using humor, building up a new type of a spiritually minded clergyman, a clerical official, official which which would, would become the new race for the church, and the cardinals and the, the papal nuncios and the legates and the popes would all come from this new race. Uh, in in the work of the Roman Oratory, which Saint Philip founded, the best. And this is an interesting point. Uh, Hugh says, the best of the old humanist tradition is preserved, and a refuge is provided for such religious spirits as some of the very forbidding figures like, oh, like the Theatine Order, we could talk about them in a moment, some of the Franciscan reforms, which they failed to attract, 
or, and this is how he sums up and possibly dismisses the, the Jesuits, he says, the barrack or the barrack square efficiency of the great Spanish company. <laughs> so indeed, the, the, the Jesuit approach was that of, he, he ran it as, as, as a military order, just as the, the government runs, just as the, the, the Navy or the Army runs itself today with a barrack square efficiency. But that's not for everybody. The Church always knows that, and that's why God knows that. That's why he gives all, all these different saints. But it's due to, it's due to Philip Neary that you got that kind of... Um, the, the idea of the, the flowering of personal sanctity and, the, and the, which we would take for granted having been you know, pious Leo, Leo pious the ninth the tenth even pious the eleventh pious the twelfth very much in that school but before during the great struggles of the sixteenth uh, century and the Catholic Reformation it was by no means to be taken for granted so you had a lot of popes who well there was one pope who got converted by uh, I think by Philip Neri at the age of fifty. Until then, he was a clergyman, but he was no Christian, that's for sure. But but the the this saint, especially, he was the apostle of Rome, um, and he used he used the the attractive force of, of of divine love to be able to draw souls to our Lord, and, um, and that's of course the oratorio, the form, the musical form of the oratorio goes back to the to the oratory of Saint Philip Neri. So he would use he would use the means of the popular arts of the day. As a, as a way of sanctifying souls, drawing them away from error, and leading them to a holy life. He would also use humor. So in that sense, very, very attractive. Then, so you could contrast uh, Philip Neri with, um, is it, is it Ignatius of Loyola? Or let's talk for a moment about the Theatines. The Theatines were founded by St. Catherine of Vienne, and this great Carafa Pope, uh, uh, Paul IV, was one of the... Um, he was he was one of the co-founders when he was bishop of of Tienne in in Italy, and that's how you get the title of the the Theatine. Saint Cajetan of Tienne is the official founder, and his feast day comes in August. Um, what, they 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 were the vanguard of a new form of religious life. Uh, the Jesuits are the best example, but came, first came the Theatines. That is to say, they were called uh, clerics regular. They weren't monks, and they weren't canons. They lived together as, 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 as priests, and usually they just wore the priest's habit, uh, the, the, the black cassock. And in their, the, the idea always was to be the leaven and the loaf, to, to go into society, especially clerical society, and in effect, without payment, uh, this is the Franciscan ideal actually, without payment to, to do the work that the priests weren't doing, that the parish priests weren't doing. So they would hear confessions, and they would preach, and they would give the last sacraments, and they would conduct missions. And they then they would, because of their dress being no different from that of the secular priests, they would influence the secular clergy, while at the same time very diplomatically and without asking for any money, because that's always a source of contention. They would... Uh, Influence the secular clergy and and reform the secular clergy. That was uh, that was really the beauty of it. So they took they took a vow of of, of and left uh, and carried out a vow of absolute poverty. They were forbidden to uh, to search after or, to, or accept without special permission any church dignity dignitary uh, dignities at all. Like to be a monsignor or to be a bishop, that was all forbidden. Um, and then in particular. They were forbidden to beg, so there was a big to do when the 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 the, the, the Theatine fathers were approved. Well, 
if you're forbidden to beg, even, how are you, how are you going to survive? What will happen if you, you're just going to die? So the church always has this practical approach. She doesn't want her priest to die of starvation. And our listening audience should keep that in mind even today, because we clergy do have to eat from time to time. It's good for us. Well, back to the theatines. So they, uh, they had agreed on a compromise in the early theatine monasteries these self-sacrificing men who just did it for the love of God. And they didn't care about uh, amalgamating power. They didn't care about defending property and having lawsuits. They didn't care about any stuff like that. They just wanted the divine love in souls to rekindle the love of our Lord by, by, the, by, by the Catholic faith lived and preached. So they agreed a compromise. They would have a, a bell. It was, like, it was something like the desperation bell. And that bell would be rung when they were really, really hungry <laughs> and there was no food in the larder. And then they would ring the bell and the idea is that the neighbors would hear, maybe the priest would something, and somebody would send some food in. And that's how, that's how they would, that's how they would survive. They also took a very sort of almost like a Jesuitical, but this would be a modern, um, Renaissance approach, a rational approach to penance. So the idea would be, okay, these are all of the different forms of prayer and of penance that a, that a priest, that a religious should be practicing. So we'll take turns doing them. And so by the day or by the week, one would take the, the, the discipline and another would uh, fast and a third would get up during the middle of the night to pray, and another would spend the time in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament. They would divide up and, and, and take by turns all the classic forms of, of Catholic ascesis and Catholic devotional life, so that it would all be covered, as it were, and all be represented. And you got a chance to, uh, to sort of excel at everything. Unfortunately, the Theatines never became very great. All of the other congregations, uh, there were Oh, St. Jerome, a million, he founded one called the Samashi. And then there are the St. Anthony and Mary Zachariah and his Barnabite fathers, the congregation of St. Paul. But those are all, in effect, just became so like no-count Italian congregations. The big one that was worldwide that had a 1,000 members at the death of its founder was the Jesuits, Company of Jesus, founded by Ignatius of Loyola. And, and as I say, he took a very organized, strict military approach to the Jesuits. And um, the Jesuits are like the French. When they're good, they're really, really good. They were the Pope's shock troops. You could count on them for anything. And then when they became bad, really, really bad. And they, they were the destruction of the church. There you have it. So uh, the, 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 the Jesuits with their um, their unique form of spirituality, which was going along with the ideas of the Renaissance of man at the center of things. Uh, but nevertheless, man at the center of things, subjecting himself to God, to God who reveals, and who has to, has to keep the commandments, has to examine his conscience, has to reform his life, which uh, w- was achieved really by the, uh, the preaching of the exercises and just, and just uh, preaching, preaching in general. And another idea of the Jesuits was that of... Um, of training men who will be really educated men. This is again a lasting notion of their of their of the Renaissance. That is to say that these men would be truly educated men in the best traditions of 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 the Renaissance. That is to say that they would know Greek and they would know Hebrew and they would know Latin, and they would know and have an appreciation for 
almost that medieval idea, universal knowledge, say, think of um, uh, um, St. Isidore of Seville, or think of St. Albert the Great. And so that's how you get Jesuits who are astrologers and Jesuits who were great um, uh, mathematicians and great uh, linguists. They were glorifying God by all these different means. And then many of these same talents and the same kind of an educational approach favored the Jesuits in their work, especially in the Orient, of spreading the Christianity throughout India, Japan, and even China. So they were they were sort of in the in the pattern of St. Paul, I am become all things to all men. But the idea always was that that secret fourth vow that some were invited to take of um of a personal a personal loyalty to the Pope to being at the Pope's at the Pope's disposal in, in everything. And it's because they were so loyal to the Pope and because they did so much good in throughout the whole world that the organized forces of naturalism, the bad guys, the Freemasons, had to destroy them. And unfortunately, a weak successor of St. Peter, uh, not that long before the coming of the French Revolution, uh, suppressed suppressed the Jesuits. And when they came back, it was, of course, you know, it's, it's never the same. It's another age. The 19th century was another age. And for a while, they were really great. But they, too, succumbed to modernist infiltration, and then from being really great, uh, now they became uh, and apostles, shock troops for the papacy. <clears throat> now they became shock troops for the anti-papacy, and they became the apostles of anti-religion, using all those same Jesuit traits of, uh, you know, the knowledge of of, of man, his mentality, uh, this very great educational approach, the schools, the universities, um, the publications, the studies, all of that eventually was was used as a means to promote the new religion, the new theology of Vatican II. So that maybe is a thumbnail sketch a little bit about about about, about the Jesuits and some of the other orders. And I would like just and, and you and I'm sure you you know your actually I have a, a great love of the Jesuits uh, having uh, and, and taken I can forgive much you for that from yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the uh, the footnote on that is uh, the Jesuits were so effective in the way that they did things that the Masons even formed some of their constitutions and their, you could say, spir- anti-spirituality based mm-hmm. on the method and the spirit of the Jesuits. They saw that what the Jesuits were doing was so effective, they said, well, if we could only harness this for evil, I'm sure they weren't thinking that that way, but uh, they, they did, and they used the Jesuit methodology and, and, uh, and the spirit in writing their constitutions to destroy the church. Yes, it's that, it's that idea, right, of, of utter subjection to the common good and the common cause, uh, a true uh, personal, perduring military discipline, the embrace of that for this cause of on my arm day glory, omnia on my arm day glory, all things for the greater glory of God. Um, Monsignor Hughes says about the Jesuits that in this idea of modern Renaissance individualism, that uh, wherever a Jesuit was, the whole order was. That and that was and, and and they would go out one by one. They were so well formed and they were so holy. These early Jesuits of the first and second generation could go out one by one, and 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 the, the great works that they did in the way of converting new nations to make up for the loss in Europe after the Protestant revolt, or reclaiming nations. It was the remember it was the it was the uh, it was the Jesuits, the Dutchman Peter Canisius, who reclaimed all of the German so many of the German speaking lands for the church 
anything that could be reclaimed that was that was his that was his great life's work and they were just they were the shock troops they 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 were some sort of very elite military body they could be trusted they would go in and they weren't for themselves like as saints are they were they they were for god they were they were all for his greater honor and glory Well, Your Excellency, there are two other things I want to speak about before we close out this section. Um, one, I've heard you give a, a great sermon on. For those of you who are wondering where to, to get a hold of His Excellency's sermons, you can just go to sgg.org and uh, go to the sermon link and click on archive, and you can scroll back through sermons. There's a sermon His Excellency gave on the reform of the Gregorian calendar, mm-hmm. um, and the school kid, the school children, and you can benefit from it. And also uh, the battle, the, the battle of Lepanto, this idea of civil action, a military civil action tied directly to the faith, in which we we couldn't possibly have won by natural means. You know, you uh, you might hear His Excellency always talk about the organized forces of naturalism, but this is a time period in which the organized forces of supernaturalism were hard at work. And I would argue that the Battle of Lepanto is one of the the shining jewels of the organized forces of supernaturalism. So, if you want to take a moment, talk about both uh, the Gregorian calendar reform, how as Luther has given us some horrible things, uh, we still have some wonderful things that have been left from the Catholic Reformation. And and how glorious was that? Here... um, here you have in the in the late 16th century Pope Gregory the Fourteenth, um, who, uh, with the aid uh, particularly of, of the Jesuits and the astronomers and uh, the scientists working at his behest, uh, it undertakes the 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 role that only a pope could do. That that's the point and that's the glory of it, because Luther had separated, he had shattered Christendom, uh, but now something needs to be done in common for everybody. That is to say, the old Roman Julian calendar is some 10, 11 days out of date, and this just won't do anymore. And everybody knows it. Who can do it? Just as who could save Christendom, who can save the West, Europe, from the Mohammedan foe? The Pope. The Pope. They've done their very best to undo the the papacy, to destroy it. And yet, in, in the very teeth of these reformers, and in the very teeth of the uh, of the um, of the despots who wanted, who were so jealous of their power, the French Catholic or the Spanish Catholic kings, or the Holy Roman Emperor, so called, uh, makes no difference. Any of them, and all their human weakness and all the rest, you have the popes who, uh, during this terrible time of, of, of difficulty and of division, and the church, in a sense, in so many places, fighting for our very survival. So you have the popes doing these glorious things of common action. And, and this, it has to be said, only by supernaturalism, a, super, a supernatural faith, humility and perseverance, and belief in prayer, that persevered in, in the teeth of all of this mockery and all of this opposition, uh, nevertheless, the popes quietly going about their business. The second uh, general of the Society of Jesus, the great uh, St. Francis Borgia, undertakes, it's a little bit like Thomas Aquinas uh, going to the Council of Lyon, which would be his last great, and then, and then, uh, and then, and then dying on the way, his, his last great uh, effort. So to Francis Borgia, as as it was customary for him, tramping through the fields 
wearing his cassock inside out out of humility of this great uh, grandee of Spain in this utter humility of his uh, his personal life and all this mortification. And he's tramping around the fields of, of Europe and sleeping in, in cow sheds and during the day meeting with, uh, with princes and the politicians and great lords and the nobles and the courts and monarchs to try to put together a Christian uh, coalition, as it were, a Christian coalition, which eventually would be led by Don Juan of Austria, the, the illegitimate son of the Habsburgs, uh, under Pius V, to, uh, to, oppose, uh, to oppose the Mohammedans. And then at the same time, we have Gregory XIV uh, instituting the reform of the calendar. And at the beginning, it was only accepted in the Catholic countries because it was seen, and rightly so, not as, a, not as sort of a practical relief that eventually our Easter is going to run into our, our Christmas. I always tease Russian Orthodox, like those like Russian Orthodox converts who are really like, kind of like hothouse religionists and, and they're very anti, anti-papal. And you say, well, look what's going to happen to you. You know, your calendar is so far off that sooner or later, your, your Christmas and your Easter are going to collide. They always have some sort of an answer to that, like the world won't last that long. But nevertheless, their calendar's <laughs> off. And the Pope saw that it was off. And, and he, he, he did something about it. And only he could. It took a long time for the English, over a century, for the English to accept that Gregorian reform. But eventually the whole world had to doff its hat and submit to the power of the keys, to the papacy, because only the Pope, and here, the time when, it, when Luther had destroyed it, at the same time, the Pope emerges stronger than ever as the common father of Christendom. What a glorious chapter in our history. This, um, you know, if you were then a secular, then you would have to admit, or a naturalist, you'd have to admit, this is for the benefit of mankind, that we should have an, an accurate calendar that unites the world together in the, in the, in the proper telling of, of time and its passage, its movement. And the same thing with, um, the, same thing with the saving of Europe, uh, several, not just once, but of course several times, by means of the popes and uh, the power of prayer. So the Pope has um, an intuition. He's offering Mass. That's going to be Don Juan. He, he's going to be the man to, to put it together. And uh, to say he's, he's sent all sorts of diplomatic envoys. He's, he's pleaded. And most of the Christian monarchs, I think of the Spanish and the French in particular, had no interest. They were interested simply in their short-term uh, political advantage, what could be gained against their Catholic neighbors in the way of, of the constant, wretched, horrible wars in which Catholic monarchs or non-Catholic uh, tyrannical leaders today always, because that's the job of a, of a leader, is to have worthless wars. Um, but the Pope sees that this is a good war. This is a war that has to take place. Somebody has to do something, and he's laughed at, he's ignored. It makes no difference. He puts together a fleet, more or less, far outnumbered by the Mohammedan fleet, but he puts together a far more powerful, a far more powerful fleet or army, and of course, that would be the army of prayer. Uh, I was reading today about how uh, Pius V in his life, you know, they, they objected that he, in effect he made Rome into a monastery, he made Rome into a holy place, and, but just in his life, when, they, when the people saw him, the expression on his face as he carried the Blessed Sacrament in procession, say, at Corpus Christi, through the streets of Rome, or when they saw him joining the, the rosary processions of the Confraternity at the great Dominican Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome, 
they knew they were looking at a, at a saint, even though they didn't want to listen to the saint, or the world didn't want to listen to the saint. Nevertheless, he was a saint. And he was a saint who was efficacious, because Our Lady had given the rosary as a means for, for what? For the saving of, of, of Christian society, of Christendom, and of souls in the face of the foe. And who's the foe here? The foe is heresy. It's, it's, um, so the Mohammedans are essentially uh, Christian heretics on the far on the far periphery of Christendom, that's for sure, but that's, that's their origin. It's an ecumenical movement uh, of, uh, of heresy and, and, and of apostasy and every form of superstition. Nevertheless, it is a spiritual movement which, which threatens Christendom. And so the Pope, by means of these rosary processions at Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, the good work of the faithful in the rosary confraternity, and his own prayer and penance, doubtless, far more than by any diplomatic means that he was able to exert successfully, he saves the day. He saves the day. And as Calixtus IV, that's going to be the same story of the of the, the Battle of Belgrade a couple centuries later, or the great Polish monarch, Jan Sobieski, the Battle of Vienna. Uh, it's always connected with Our Blessed Lady, and it's connected with prayer and devotion, and it's organized by the Church in, in the face of seemingly impossible odds. But that's, these, are, these are two, especially because when they occur, the 16th century, during all this, this crisis and all this attack against the faith, what, what a glorious chapter these two events um, uh, compose in, in the history of the faith and what we're talking about today in the history of the, of the true Catholic Reformation. Indeed, Your Excellency, it's, it's the Church uh, saving those people who think they're too good for the Church, right? Yeah, so right. whether the, the, the Church will help you whether you want it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're, you, That's right. you will be helped, whether it's helping you keep your time correctly or helping you not be overrun by a bunch of people who think that, a, that uh, any book outside of their book of lies should be uh, burned or is superfluous. Uh, right, you know, all, a religion all with, the... with no no culture, no beauty, and a bunch of lies. <laughs> Rather, a reduction is you, but I can I I hear you, as they say, Stephen. I see where you're coming from. Certainly, <laughs> uh, a bunch of murderous terrorists, not to put too fine a point on, and always have been. That's how the religion spread. And uh, you know, they they certainly weren't making some sort of a procession of prayer anyway, and anywhere for the success of their attacks on Vienna or Belgrade or the naval battle of Lepanto. They were trusting vainly in their false god and in their military might because their religion has always been has always been spread as is being spread today, say in Nigeria, by the sword. It's always been spread by the sword. It's it's always funny that you know people talk about the the great uh, contribution of Muslim architecture to Spain, and this all comes down to really the Alhambra in Granada. But uh, I, mm-hmm. I I maintain that the only reason that something like the Alhambra could exist was because it was rooted in in a Catholic country where those sorts of things were valued, and, and the the Muslims in Spain simply adapted. You don't see things like the Alhambra in in Muslim countries. You don't see it. You know, uh, in Saudi Arabia, there aren't things that exist. Like they have giant hotels there. That, that's what they like building. So, um, but 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 of course, that's because of a heresy within a heresy, and the the Wahhabi version of Mohammedanism, which is that of a, of a Puritan movement, and it's the same thing. 
here you, you, you've hit that point again, Stephen. Brilliant. It's that same thing. It takes us back to Martin Luther. You always have to tie things up towards the end. Um, the money is not going to be spent on the perfume throw, poured out on our divine Savior's feet. It's not going to be spent on architecture and incense and beautiful vestments and art and the worship of God. In, the, in these Puritans, heretical Puritan movements, it will be spent on who? On man. And so these sheiks with their harems and their fleets of, uh, of jets, of cars, and uh, their hotels, as you say, commerce and hotels. That's what those, that these are. Here are your gods, O Israel, or here are your gods, O Arabia. <laughs> yeah. here, here are their gods. That's, that's what they're going to worship. And, and that's thank you, uh, Father Martin Luther. Thank you, for, Luther, for, for, for getting the ball rolling on all of this. So it's always, it's always, um, it's always Luther. It's always Luther. Well, um, I think that's a, a great conclusion uh, to a show. Thank you for informing me and all of our listeners today. Um, for, for those just joining, we're at the end of our show today. His Excellency guided us through uh, specific errors of Martin Luther and, and what they've led to in, in our modern day life, as well as taking a, a sort of 10,000 foot view of the Catholic Reformation and what, uh, what the glory of that time period brought and is also still with us. So we have legacies today from both of those time periods, whether it be the calendar we use every day or the subjectivism of your neighbor who goes to the megachurch. Um, history yeah. is with us always. Interestingly, next month is the Feast of the Sacred Heart. His Excellency and I did a show on the Sacred Heart in Season 1 of Restoration Radio. If you want to find that, simply go to restorationradionetwork.com type in the phrase sacred heart and you will find that that episode and it was a it was a great episode learned a lot and uh, there's also a little bit in there towards the end of that episode about the divine mercy uh, that was something that I got to revisit recently when I was in Krakow and uh, his excellency enlightens us a bit as to this devotion so called and what traditional catholics need to know I'm not going to tell you you have to listen to the episode uh, in order to get it. So that's my, my little tease for the day. Your Excellency, uh, as always, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks for your time. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure, Stephen. God bless you, and God, God bless our audience. All right. Thank you. So uh, remember to keep His Excellency in your prayers. Uh, think about uh, think about him uh, when you'd like to make some contributions. You can find his work at sggresources.org as well as at sgg.org. So make sure to think about the fact that His Excellency spends, what, he spent two hours with us today, uh, giving you his knowledge about history. So be generous, be kind, and uh, think about him uh, and his work and uh, contribute. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you, into your faith that you please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated a heartfelt for your kindness and generosity, remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important, <clears throat> the most important dono donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even simply an ave for our work the next time you pray. If you have any questions or comments or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. At, and you can email mail at truerestoration.org. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.